I think I've told you <clears throat> this before, but when I finished my internship in a church in California, I uh, worked for a while at a home for handicapped children. I was basically their surrogate father. There were all kinds of handicaps there. There were uh, people with hydrocephalus, uh, muscular dystrophy, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. I got to tell you, that was one of the most delightful jobs I've ever had. Those kids were so responsive to love. You could just flat out love them without trying to finesse it, and they would respond. One of my favorites was a beautiful young 12-year-old girl named Dawn. Dawn had very severe cerebral palsy. She couldn't control any of her muscles other than her eyes. But Dawn could say more with her eyes than most of us can with our mouths. Dawn uh, was extremely intelligent, but she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't control her elimination processes. She was literally as helpless as a newborn baby. You know, we expect these things in, in a baby, inability to cr- control their muscles, inability to eat solid food. But as they grow, we expect that to change. We expect them to progress to eating solid food, to using a toilet, to to being able to walk and to to, to control their muscles. And when that doesn't happen, like it didn't with Don, we know something is terribly wrong. When a 12-year-old can't eat any better than a newborn babe, something is unhealthy. Or when a 5-year-old or a 3-year-old or a 2-year-old is no better at eating, something is terribly wrong. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. We have something similar going on here. Let me read the first three verses, get us into it. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Actually, the word there is fleshly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly or fleshly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not acting like mere men? Paul says, there's something wrong here. I've got to treat you like babies. Now, when he came earlier, that was okay. They were babies. He led a lot of them to the Lord, and he began to nurture their spiritual life. But that was six years ago. Paul visited Corinth probably around 50, 51 A.D. on his second missionary journey. And now he's writing from Ephesus about 56, 57 A.D. He says, after six years, I still have to treat you like babies. You're not progressing. Something is wrong here. If I try to feed you solid food, you choke on it. See, that's what happens when you try to feed a, a new baby uh, solid food. They'll choke on it. Paul's saying something is terribly unhealthy here. Well, what are we talking about feeding them solid food or, or milk? Turn with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews said, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The New American Standard translates that verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have have their senses trained to discern good and evil. 
You see, these people there in, in Hebrews weren't ready for anything more, any more about how they should live their life in Christ. There's some profound truths about who Jesus is and the implications of that in our lives and our, our daily decisions. And the writer's saying, you're just not ready for this. Notice again what he said there in, in verse 14. That solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You see, solid food eaters are those who because of practice, because they've, they, they've responded to what they've learned by taking it home and putting it into practice in their daily lives. They've practiced it in their real lives and as a result they're ready for more. They've discovered for themselves good and evil. They've discovered that what God says is good. It's healthy. It's going to stimulate their, their growth, their walk with God. It's going to, to cause them and allow them to make healthy decisions that will build rather than destroy. It's real in their lives. And as a result, they have become truly wise, able to avoid those things that are evil, those things that are destructive and damaging and will ruin their lives and, and, and damage their families, their relationships, their friends. You know, one of the dangers of any church is people who come week after week, sit and hear, but they don't put what they hear into practice. One of the, the most deadly things that you can do to yourself is to listen and not take what you hear home. Not let it affect the way you treat your, your wives or your husbands or your family. Not let it affect your priorities. Not let it affect the relationships you develop. You know, sometimes it actually frightens me to think how many people may not be developing spiritually because they never take what they're hearing, what they're learning, and put it into practice. If you don't, if you don't repent of that and ask God to begin to build these things into your life, to begin living by the Word of God, you will never mature spiritually. You'll stay weak, dependent, helpless babies, unable to survive spiritually. Well, back in, in, in Corinth, this was exactly what the problem was. They weren't developing. Paul says, I want to give you good, solid food but I can't. You're too fleshly. So that's the problem. That was the root problem. They were fleshly. Now, what does that mean? Unfortunately, the New American or the New International Version translates that word worldly, but it's literally fleshly. Old time uh, King James translated it carnal. Now, what is fleshly? Now, I'm fleshly. This is a fleshly hand. I'm made of flesh and bones. Aren't we all? I mean, what's the problem here? Now, see, Paul uses two words for fleshly, for of the flesh. He says, you are men of flesh. Well, the first word means to be of the flesh. Have a body. Have flesh and bones. It just means to be human. But the second word that he uses in, in verse 3 twice is slightly different. It means to be controlled by the flesh. So he finishes verse 3 saying, aren't you acting like mere human beings, mere people? Well, what is this flesh stuff? Well, let me explain. You see this contrast between flesh and spirit all the way through Scripture. Let's go back to creation. When God created man, He created him in His image. That is, having a spirit able to commune with God who is spirit. 
And he also gave him a body. He made him a man of flesh as well. A body that he could think with, that feels, that gets hot, tired or hungry, that has physical urges. And you see, man is two-tiered, spirit and flesh. And the spirit, the relationship with God was to be in control. As man walked with God in his spirit on a daily basis, God would explain what life was about. God would show him what was good and healthy and constructive and, and what was dangerous and damaging and destructive. See, that would take place. This communication would go on as man walked daily with God in his spirit. But man sinned. He rebelled. And as a result, he died spiritually. That top tier was cut off. And all he was left with was the flesh, was a body, was his own thinking, his own feelings, the way he figured it out, his reasoning, his desires, his needs. He still had a body that got tired and hungry and affected him. And see, that's all that man had. And so he became controlled by the flesh, by his reasoning, by his body, by his needs. It wasn't that he didn't listen to his spirit. He didn't have one that was alive. As a result, he was unable to do what was ultimately right and healthy and constructive. He was unable to please God, as Paul says in in Romans 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind controlled by the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're unable to. But see, what happens when we become Christians is we are reborn spiritually. We once again have the Spirit of God and all that He provides. And as we walk with Him, listening to Him, He again starts to show us what life is all about. He starts to show us what is good, constructive, healthy, and helpful, and what is evil, damaging, destructive. He does this as we walk with Him on a daily basis, learning to listen and to obey. We see what was going on in uh, Corinth now was that these guys were acting like mere men. But they weren't anymore. They were new men. They had, a, had God's spirit once again. But they didn't listen to him. You see, when we receive the spirit, regain the spirit, we, know, we don't lose the flesh. We once again have both. We still can reason and think. We still can feel. Our bodies still get tired and hungry. We still have physical urges. But we can once again allow the Spirit to be in control. No longer controlled by these other things. No longer letting these other things dominate us and lead us. But instead, letting the Spirit lead us so that we can progress spiritually and not stay spiritual babies. For these Corinthians, the evidence that there was this control by the flesh was that there were jealousies and strife and arguments and dissensions among them. They were, they were, they were not getting along. They were seeking their own interests rather than putting each other's interests first. They were, they were seeking honor for themselves rather than out, trying to outdo one another in honor. They just begin to, 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 to separate themselves from each other, look down on each other. There are all kinds of bad feelings, all kinds of in-groups and cliques. But unfortunately, some of those things go on here at Cole. Some of you have felt these things. Some of you have felt left out or put down. Or 
Some of you have felt the tensions that, that are among us at times. See, the key is for us, each of us as individuals and all of us as a group, to begin listening to the Holy Spirit as He takes us toward loving each other, reaching out to each other, making each other feel welcome and loved. And to the degree we don't do that, we're still controlled by the flesh and it will still have that damaging effect among us. We will still be fleshly. There are other evidences, I think, among us of that dominance by the flesh. The other day I was talking to a growth group leader, a friend of mine, and we were trying to think through how to help a young woman in the singles group who had told us that she was sleeping with a guy. Now, she could see nothing wrong with this. It just seemed so right in her life. And I really became frustrated as I was talking to him. I said, how could somebody go to this church year after year and not know that that was wrong, that that was going to destroy her? This guy reminded me that it wasn't that people don't know the truth. It's not that people don't have the Spirit. It's that they don't listen. They don't have ears to hear. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. See, when we hear the truths of Scripture, either taught on a Sunday or or in your growth group, or as you're talking about it among yourselves and encouraging each other in the Word, or or even listening to the radio or, or doing your own Bible study, as you hear the Word of God, you are being confronted by the Spirit. And you have an option. You can choose to respond in one of two ways, one fleshly, one spiritual. The fleshly response is to focus on what you think about that truth, how you feel about it. As a result, you you choke on the truth. And you continue to make your decisions based on, on your flesh, on how you feel, what you think, what seems right and best to you. Your, your flesh judges spiritual truths. Now, the spiritual response is to to think through and consider, is this really of God? Is this really what God is trying to say? And if it is, to receive it gladly, regardless of how you feel about it. And to start to explore the implications for this truth in your daily life, in your relationships, in the way you treat your family and friends. And to begin to ask God to build these truths into your life, to change you so that you live by the Word of God. And in doing that, you allow the Spirit to judge the flesh, your feelings, your thoughts, your inclinations. And that way, you are no longer controlled by the flesh. And being controlled by the Spirit will lead to spiritual maturity, a a healthy appetite for spiritual things. And the fruit of the Spirit in your life and your relationships, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, health, faithfulness, self-control, these things will start to erupt in your life. Well, back to the Corinthians. The primary manifestation of their spiritual immaturity, their prolonged infancy, was their tendency to depend excessively on leaders. They looked at guys like Paul and Apollos, and they wanted to be followers of them rather than followers of the Spirit, followers of of truth. You know, this is often a sign of spiritual immaturity to, to elevate a leader and to want to follow that leader and to, to depend on that leader rather than dealing directly with God. And Paul points out the foolishness of this. He says that's just that doesn't make any sense. Look at verse four. 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not acting like mere men? Aren't you dominated by the flesh? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul said that he was a fellow worker with God. And we also are God's fellow workers. We work for God, but he calls us his associates, his fellow workers. You see, God is the senior partner in the firm. But rather than making us feel dispensable, uh, like insignificant nobodies, he elevates us to junior partners, even though we just operate the elevator or wash windows. You see, he values us. He appreciates our contribution. He's a, a good employer. And so he develops us in our job. And he takes care of our needs for food and shelter and clothing. He is the ultimate employer. And no matter who else you work for, you should work for him first. You'd be foolish to pass up such a great employer. Well, notice what uh, Paul uses to illustrate the the job that we are to do. He uses two things to illustrate. He first uh, uses the picture of a garden or a field. You are God's field. You are God's garden. I like to picture a beautifully planted garden with all kinds of colors and variety of plants growing and healthy, each contributing to the beauty of the whole, but each one having its own individual beauty. And Paul's saying, you are just such a beautiful garden for God's delight. But he's also saying that we are gardeners, that we have jobs to do. Notice the jobs that he gave uh, Paul and Apollos. Paul was a planter, and Apollos was a waterer. A planter is somebody who shares the gospel, the good news of, of, of God's love in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross to make us able to enjoy God's love, and to com- have our communication and our relationship with God restored. And a water is somebody who comes along when that seed is already planted and that person is already started spiritually and he encourages that growth. He waters it and prunes it and encourages it along. And notice Paul says that each of them did their job as God assigned them. They're servants and God assigns his, his servants to a job. Well, how did God do that? Paul says it was by giving them opportunity. When Paul first came to Corinth... God opened opportunities for him to explain the gospel to Jews there in the synagogue and to God-fearing Gentiles who were around the synagogue. And those people listened, and God used that opportunity to plant new life in them. And when Apollos came to this new body of believers, God gave him the opportunity to begin encouraging them and and, and explaining to them a little bit who they were in Christ and, and how to grow in Christ. And he began to teach them based on the things that the apostles were saying. Again, God gave them opportunities. And that's how he assigns us our task. He gives you opportunities. 
Each of us has a job. Each of us has a plot to take care of. You have relationships, friendships, work associates, a family. All these relationships through which God provides you opportunity. With some, it'll be an opportunity to plant, to explain to them how much God has loved you in Christ and how He can help them. Or to water with others, to to help people see the truth of who they are in Christ, how much God loves them, how delighted He is in them, the things of, of Scripture that will help them to grow and to understand God will open opportunities within the body as you as you get to know each other. He gives you the opportunity either to plant or to water, to encourage growth. But ultimately, it is God who causes growth. You know, seeds are remarkable things. Uh, last Halloween, when we were cleaning a pumpkin, Becky saved a little cup of seeds. And this last spring, Holly and Jessica and their grandpa went out and planted the seeds. And every once in a while they would go out and look. And sure enough, pretty soon here came this little sprout and it grew and it grew into this huge pumpkin vine just loaded with pumpkins. They, My girls are out in front of the house selling pumpkins now. You know, how did this happen? I couldn't make that happen. I could take one of those seeds and cut it open and there was no vine and no pumpkins in there. Each seed is a, a miracle of God. God causes growth. You know, that's why farmers are some of the most religious people in any society, because they know that God causes growth. We can describe how it happens. We can describe the process by which a seed germinates and a sprout comes up. We can even encourage an environment where this can take place. But ultimately, it is God who causes growth. Now, there are three things that uh, Paul says about waters, waterers, and planters in verse 7 and 8. First, he says that they are not the important thing. God is the important worker, and you guys, the garden is the important objective. See, the the person doing the planting, the person doing the watering, is only a servant of God, and God is the one that makes them effective. And the objective is to see the garden grow. That's just the way it works. To see people start a new life with Christ and to grow in that life. Today, basically, I am a waterer. But this isn't my church. This isn't Dave Roper's church. This isn't the elders' church. God is the important worker here. And you are the important plants. And God's design is to use His servants in whatever capacity to make that garden grow. That's what's important. You are the garden. You are God's garden. You are the focus. But you're also planters and waterers. That's His design. That not only are we all together that garden, but we all together plant and water. The second thing that Paul says is that planters and waterers have the same goal. That is, to to please God, to please the owner, and to see the garden grow. Their goal isn't to be super gardeners, to be written up in better homes and garden. Their goal is to please God and to see the garden grow. And as a result, there's no room for competition or jealousy. When somebody else's garden is going great, fantastic. That's the objective. And there's no reason to be offended when somebody comes and waters your plants. Great. Great. 
The objective is that the garden grow, that God be pleased and that the garden grow. And the third thing he said was that uh, each worker will receive his wages or his reward. You know, even though that wages and reward is not the focus, the focus is to please God and to see the garden grow, you've got to remember God is a good employer. And good employers recognize hard work. They, 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 they recognize initiative and they want to encourage it and they reward it. I've got a friend who was an engineer working on a project with several other engineers and most of them were doing their job. But one guy was really slacking off. They had a time uh, limit by which they had to, to accomplish this project. And I was really proud of my friend. His attitude, it was very encouraging to see how he responded to this guy. He didn't get real put out and angry at this guy. He didn't start wringing his hands and, and get worried about what everybody was going to think about him when the, when the project wasn't done. Instead, he just committed himself to working all the harder. And he began to help this other guy with his part of the project. As a result, they were able to complete it. Now, his purpose, his goal, his focus was not on gaining recognition. He didn't care who got the glory. He cared about pleasing his employer and getting the project done. But you know, his supervisors noticed his attitude. They saw his hard work. And they appreciated it. And they encouraged it. And they recognized it with recognition and promotion. See, that wasn't the goal. But that's what happened. By keeping his his focus on the goal, he received the reward. I'm not at all sure what our spiritual reward is as we encourage and plant and water. Uh, It's probably a lot more than I think it is, but I know it's at least a profound sense of joy and satisfaction. You know, they've done surveys to try to determine the factors that, that make for job satisfaction. And strangely enough, money isn't in the top two. The, the most important factor was a sense of importance of the job. And then second to that was a sense of accomplishment at the job. Well, people planting and watering spiritually is by far the most important job there is. No industry or invention or service comes anywhere near it. The implications of our job are eternal. We're addressing people's most fundamental Need More important than their need for food or medicine or entertainment, which is our society's uh, primary service. There is no more important job that we're called to do than to plant and to water spiritually. I uh, have included just for fun in your bulletin a job description for you. I think it's valuable from time to time. To go over your job description and remember what you're about, I think uh, my supervisors would probably be refreshed if I would do that now and again. It would probably keep me from going quite so crazy. But uh, I'll leave you to look at that on your own. The second uh, picture that um, Paul uses is that of a building. Now, when I was uh, in Germany several years back, I went to visit the cathedral in Cologne. This thing is a huge, massive, solidly built cathedral. But on this solid structure 
are all these intricacies, all these carvings of statues and other designs, all this really fine detail. All of this built to last, to endure. In fact, it's, it's been there for hundreds of years. It survived two world wars. There's bullet holes and pockmarks in it, but it still is strong and as stable as ever with as much beauty as ever. I'm sure if God tarries that it'll be there for another couple hundred years. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was very much like that. It was an enormous, solid structure. Some of the foundation stones were 40 feet long. But built on this solid foundation was all this beautiful intricacy of inlays of gold and silver and precious stones. It was built enduring. It was built to be beautiful. And Paul says you as a group are just such a structure, enduring, solid, and beautiful. The, the pronouns Paul uses here for the temple in the section we're going to read are plural. We together are that structure, that beautiful temple, solid, enduring, and beautiful. Let me read uh, a couple of the, uh, the verses, starting verse 9 through 23. The temple is the body of Christ, us together. It's a construction job that's been going on for the last 2,000 years, never stopping around the world. I think right now we're putting on the top of the last story and working on the roof. But listen to what Paul has to say, starting in verse 9. You are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. First thing that Paul does is he says uh, that he laid the foundation there in Corinth. Notice how how he says he did that. He laid that foundation according to the grace given to him. Now, Paul wants you to understand right up front what your job is. Uh, qualification is. It wasn't according to Paul's intelligence. It wasn't according to Paul's experience. It wasn't according to Paul's fortitude or, or, or worthiness. It was according to the grace given to him. And that same grace is extended to us as God's fellow workers. No matter how intelligent you are or aren't, no matter what your experience no matter how worthy you feel. You may not feel smart enough. You may not feel well enough trained. You may not feel worthy or or strong. But remember, it's God who accomplishes the building. And by His grace, He's able to use us in that process. It is His ability that's at question here. If it's all God's ability, then we can just kind of sit back and hammer a little here and throw a little paint up there and kind of do a half-hearted job of it. 
Well, that's not Paul's attitude at all. Notice he calls himself a wise master builder. The term wise, wisdom, is used back in, in Exodus 35 to describe the artists who worked on the tabernacle, who did the fine, beautiful, intricate artwork on it. They were filled with wisdom, is what Moses said. Wisdom means skill. There it was skill at artistry. Here we're talking about skill at life. Wisdom is skill in living. You see, that's what God always does. He takes His grace extended to us and combines that with our ever-growing skill. The difference between a gift, between grace and skill, is that skill is acquired. It's developed. How do you acquire skill? How do you acquire skill at playing the piano? You practice. How do you acquire skill at basketball? You practice. It's hard, disciplined work. And you see, Paul applied himself to acquiring that skill at building other believers, building the body. He worked hard. He thought about it. He made mistakes, and he learned from those mistakes. He was constantly developing that's God's design to, to supply His grace so that even though we can't figure out which end of the hammer to hold on to, He still uses us. But in that process, He develops us. He teaches us. He gives us successes and failures so that we become better and better at it, so that we find fulfillment in the task that He's given us. If you don't develop if you don't improve, you will drop out. You know, for my daughter, pounding a nail is a challenging and rewarding experience. But if they don't grow in their, in their skill, develop in their carpentry, they'll get bored, they'll quit, they'll drop out. See, the skill that God is developing in us is the skill at loving each other encouraging each other, counseling each other, confronting each other, comforting each other, knowing what to say and how to say it and when to say it. There is no more challenging skill. That's exactly what God is is developing in us. But if you don't develop, it'll become overwhelming. It'll become tiresome, tedious, and you'll burn out and you'll drop out and you'll disappear you come here week after week and just sit and listen, again, that's okay for a while. We all need a place to rest, a place to grow, to heal. But after a time, if you aren't developing in your skill at building up the body of of loving other people, then you'll disappear. You'll burn out. You'll walk away. So Paul says, according to the grace given him as a master builder... He laid down the foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean that that foundation is Jesus? How do you lay Jesus Christ down? Well, I think what he's talking about is when he was in Corinth, he made it absolutely clear that the starting place is trust, dependence on Jesus Christ. That is the absolute essential starting place for our personal lives and our lives Together for building a structure of fellowship and a body. Dependence on Jesus Christ for our relationship with God. Understanding that He has removed our sin and made us acceptable to the Father by His death on the cross. Dependence on Him for identity. What we're about. Why we're here. Who we are. 
who we are as a group. Dependence on Him for our future, uh, both in this world and in the world to come. This dependence, this trust in Jesus Christ is the foundation. Without that foundation, our individual lives will fall over. Our corporate life will fall in on itself. And that foundation is the one the apostles laid, the foundation of the true Christ, the Christ of Scripture. Not the Christ of our imagination, which would never intrude on our lives, winks at our sin. Or on the other hand, the Christ of our imagination, who is stern and unloving and turns people away who come to Him in need. Neither of these are the true Christ, the Christ of Scripture. The Christ of Scripture is unwavering in his intolerance of sin, yet also unwavering in his readiness to forgive and embrace all those that come to him in repentance and in need. This is the Christ of Scripture. And this is the true foundation. A building built on any other foundation will be shaky. It will teeter and fall. Well, Paul also warns us there in verse 10 to be careful how we build. Again, we're all builders. And he wants us to pay attention to the materials that we use. It's supposed to be good, precious materials. Gold, silver, precious, well-cut building stones. Not wood, hay, or straw. Well, what is this enduring material? Let me read a couple verses from 1 Peter. Don't turn there, just listen. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. You see, that enduring material is the Word of God, and specifically the Word that was preached by the apostles. The Word we have right here in our Bibles. And it's by building with this material that we build to last. Every time you, in conversation with each other, are trying to encourage each other, or comfort each other, or try to talk each other into a specific attitude or action, you are building on the body. Just be careful the material you use. Don't use the wood and the hay and the straw of the flesh or or of the world's philosophy. Don't let those philosophies worm in. Don't encourage people to look out for themselves to get their fair share. Don't encourage toward bitterness or revenge. Don't try to comfort by making it look like sin is okay. This is the wood and the straw that's going to burn. And their lives are going to be scorched if you encourage them in that direction. Instead, build with the, the, the beautiful, precious, valuable Word of God. Encourage them back to the truth. Encourage them to act out of the love of Christ. To depend on Christ. And you'll be building something beautiful. You'll be enhancing the body. Now, I'm out of time, so I can't go through the rest of it. But let me tell you basically what Paul does. He also warns us against destroying the temple. Vandalism. He says God takes that terribly seriously. Well, how do we destroy the temple? We destroy the cement that holds it together, the cement of love and faith. And we do that by gossiping and by hatred and by division and by tearing down each other's confidence in the Lord. And God takes that 
very seriously. Thank you for those who are unbelievers who do that. The punishment is the destruction of eternal destruction. For those of us who are believers, I think the punishment is destruction of our lives. We become petty, miserable people. Then Paul finishes off by again warning us against becoming fools because of the world's wisdom. He says we want to pretend to be wise and sophisticated so we end up acting like fools. We, we, we want to be in the in-group, and so we look down on other people. We act like we have our act together. We want to look wise, and so we really look like fools. I think Plato hit it on the head when he said, He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. He who knows not but knows that he knows not is wise. You see, we've got to be constantly always ready and willing to admit how little we do know, how little we understand, how absolutely dependent we are on God and His Word for wisdom. And as we admit that and as we face that, we become profoundly wise as we come back to the God's Word over and over again. That's how we grow in our skill. We learn from the Master. So as people who don't have it all together, but who are committed to growing in our skill, who are dependent on the grace of God, let's devote ourselves to planting, to watering, to building and beautifying the body of Christ. Not using the philosophies around us, not using what seems and feels right, the philosophies of the flesh, but using the beautiful, enduring word of God. Well, let's pray. Lord, I confess just how uh, easy it is to focus life on other things, to hear the truth and walk away from it, to not take it home, to not let it affect real life. I confess how, how easy it is to begin using the wisdom of this world or, or what feels right and seems right rather than listening to your Spirit, using your Word. But Lord, I do ask that you begin to build your Word into our lives, that you begin to use us more and more effectively and powerfully in our relationships, in our communication with each other, in the ministry opportunities you give us to make your garden flourish, to beautify your plants, and to see them healthy to make your building beautiful, to build each other up. Lord, we want to be your servants. We want to work for you, and we praise you for the good employer you are. Just use us for your glory, even as you develop us and increase our skill. We need you, God. Amen.